Hey everyone, you're listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Ephesians. Enjoy the message. Okay, so Ephesians part two. Let me just do a quick recap for you because I really think it's important that you understand the overall framework of the book of Ephesians. We framed it around three words. And the three words are sit, walk, stand. And what you find in the book of Ephesians is you actually have this progression from sit, walk, stand. And those words are actually used in the book. The book talks about us being seated with Christ. And so it starts off with the indicative. Before we get to do something, we are to be someone. And we realize our identity in Christ. And the book talks about who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ. And this morning, we're going to double-click on that. We're going to find out how we got to be in Christ. How do you become a Christian? That's the big question that we're going to answer this morning. But then we move on to walk. Walk out your Christian faith. So sit, walk, walk in love, walk in the ways of God, and then stand. We, we know, and we noted last time that there are certain things as Christians we have to stand for, And we need to stand against certain things as well. And so there's a positive and a negative element to that. And then we did a kind of parallel uh, explanation of this framework of sit, walk, stand as we spoke about how the culture views life today. And we spoke about the water tanks. Remember the three water tanks? The water tank of freedom and the water tank of meaning and the water tank of community. And we said that the water tank of freedom is overflowing. In today's world, in today's society, the inputs into freedom are exploding our water tanks to the demise and detriment of the water tank of meaning. People are living with very little purpose anymore these days. There's a very little sense of meaning to their lives because we're overflowing in the tank of freedom. And we think that if we can get freedom, we can truly experience community. But what we said was community actually comes not through freedom, but through sacrifice. And if we're going to experience true community, we need to have the water tank of of meaning filled up as well because that's what gives community direction. And yes, freedom is important, but freedom alone is destructive. And all we need to do is note what's happening in the world around us, and we can see that an overflowing tank of freedom actually doesn't bring freedom. It brings slavery. Now, let me just say this. Analysts are saying and telling us that we're now living in a post-Christian era. It's a post-Christian culture that we're living in, at least in the West. And and what they mean by that is that traditional Christian values are either being abandoned or being rearranged, what some call deconstructionism. And and, and some churches are falling into this very trap of deconstructing the faith because of the pressure that the world is placing on the church to conform or to rearrange our truth in order to try and be more appealing in order to try and keep numbers, in order to try and keep relevant. And in the name of relevance, we lose our distinction. Now, we're not to be fools, and we're not to be idiots, and we're not to be bigots. Those are the words that the world uses against the church. No, we we shouldn't be those people, but at the same time, we need to be a people of conviction. A people of conviction and a people of compassion. 
And it's interesting, how did we get to this post-Christian era? Well, if we just go back a few years and we think about what it was like post-war, you know, after World War I and World War II, actually the world was relatively calm. There was a sense of peace. You know, politics seemed to be stable. We had some really good presidents in the world, unlike now. Uh, we had some really good politicians in, in play. There was, there was a real sense of peace and order in the world. And, and religiously, things were at a peak. Uh, sociologists tell us that religiously, the world was actually at a pinnacle in terms of some would call revival in the church. During the late 60s and early 70s, the, the explosion of the charismatic movement across the world had brought huge growth to churches across the nations. And so the world in that era, in that time, was in kind of cruise mode. Politics was stable. Religion was in its place. But that's no longer the situation, is it? Politics is all over the show, and religion is being attacked. But the interesting thing is, it's not that politics is going up and religion is going down. Although religion is being attacked, the, the sense of pure religion is being attacked, what I want to submit to you is that politics is the new religion. Politics, it's not that religion is, is becoming better or worse. It's that politics is becoming a religious game. And many are finding themselves in this extreme leftist position or the extreme right position. You know, the leftists used to be those who were all-inclusive and very kind and peaceful, weren't they? The guys on the extreme left were the inclusive kind. They, were, they had an agenda. Let's not get them wrong. They had an agenda. Um, but they were generally generous, peaceful, inclusive. Whereas the ones on the right were the more conservative. The ones on the right were the more fundamentalists, weren't they? And the leftists, when they were not in a good mood, would call them religious Pharisees. The, the very extreme right groups would be your fundamental Pharisees. I want to say to you, that playing field is now leveled. The leftists are the new Pharisees. Because you know what the leftist motto is? The leftist motto is, it doesn't matter how you live your life. When it comes to morality, it really doesn't matter. But the one thing you better not do is think differently to me. And they've become the new Pharisees. Because if you think differently or if you say anything different to what they think, they will smash you verbally, physically. They've become a revolution of their own form and kind. And so all that to say, everyone now has a vision for their lives. Everyone has a vision of what life should be like. And the vision often goes like this. We want freedom. We want happiness. We want justice. We want equality. Essentially what we're saying is we want the kingdom of God, because that's what the kingdom of God brings. We want the kingdom of God without the king. We want the vision of Jesus but we don't want the teachings of Jesus. And I want to say to you, you can't have it that way. You see, the world does want 
peace and the world does want happiness and the world does want equality and inclusion. And those are all kingdom realities. But in, in order for it to be properly functioning, you can't have the kingdom of those things without the king himself. Because they don't come, those things don't come and are not sustained through political endeavors. They're only coming and at least only sustained through heart change. And there's only one who can change the heart, and that's King Jesus. So on that note, we're going to turn to Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 14. And this passage really is a knife in the heart of self-autonomy. This kingdom of self that we see in the world today, this passage takes a direct shot at the heart of self-autonomy. Because what we're going to encounter here is the absolute freedom of God, the absolute sovereignty of God. And that we actually fit into his plans. Yes, you can plan, but do you know that God has the right to interrupt your plans? That's what it means to be God. And so as we come to Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14, I want to just remind you of a few things. You might not know this, that actually this is one long sentence in the Greek. From verse 3 to verse 14 is one long sentence with no apostrophes, no commas, no uh, any of that kind of stuff. And so this is an English teacher's nightmare. So we've got it in English. We've got all these pauses and breaks. And, uh, and, and so that's the one thing I want to just say about verses 3 to 14. But also I want to say to you that we're going to encounter here some of the deepest most precious doctrines in the Bible. And so we are literally jumping into the swimming pool and it's really comfortable because, you know, you've got the shallow end, but that's not where we're going to stay. This text takes us from the shallow end right into the deep end of theological truth. So if you feel like you're a little bit over your head in this, we're all together, right? Because we're going to read about words like election and chosen and predestined and redemption and adoption. What are those words? And so I'm going to invite my dear wife, and she's going to read the text for us. Dear. <laughs> All right, verses 3 to 14. Thanks, love. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption in him as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having, see, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire a possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. So what we find in verses 9 to 10 here is the central position or the thesis of what Paul's trying to describe here for us. And that is that God has got a cosmic plan. And the reason he's got a cosmic plan, a great cosmic plan, is because there's been a great cosmic rebellion. You see the word unite. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me again. Making known to us the mystery of his will. So that's what Paul's doing. He's making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, God has a purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Here it is. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. In those words, the heaven on earth literally can be translated the cosmos. Which is why I say God has got a cosmic plan. And the cosmic plan is to unite. Why, why unite all things in Christ? Because there is a disunity that has occurred. There is a disruption that has occurred. There is a rebellion that has happened. There's a separation that has occurred. Something radical happened that will require none other than the Lord Jesus Christ to reunite. And so the text is very clear that the reason for the disunity is brokenness. There is a brokenness. Then the brokenness is called sin. And we're all too aware of that, aren't we? If we're just honest with ourselves, we're aware. Some call it weakness. The Bible calls it sin. Call it what you want. It is what it is. And sin is something that has infected and affected everyone. Not only human beings, but the whole cosmos. The whole of creation is out of whack. Hence my introduction in terms of where we find ourselves in the world today. The Bible is very clear, Romans 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that verse, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, this is one we may not know. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. I love this one because we love to think that we're essentially good people. I want to suggest to you that we're not essentially good people. If you compare yourself with one another, then yes, you may have a great exp uh, estimation of yourself, but I want to suggest to you that we are not to compare ourselves with one another, but to compare ourselves with God, with Jesus. And when we do that, we realize we fall short, that there isn't a righteous person who never sins. Notice there it says, who never sins. There is not one. And so there was a problem but God had a cosmic plan. Because there was a cosmic rebellion, there was a cosmic plan. And God was going to respond, and God is going to fix the problem. But here's the first thing we need to log. God didn't have to. 
God didn't have to. John MacArthur says this. He says, if God were to exercise only his justice, no person would ever be saved. And God was fully entitled only to be just. Because he's not accountable to anyone. That's what it means to be God. And if he were only to exercise his justice, then no one would be saved. But we know the good news, and the good news of the gospel is God is not only just, but he's loving. Yes, he's just, and he could, he could have left this fallen, broken world. He could have allowed it to stay broken, but he didn't because he's not only just, he's also loving. And so what does he do? Michael Eaton affirms this. He says, since mankind fell into sin, the entire universe has been falling apart. Men and women are hateful towards each other. God and man are mutual enemies. Creation does not easily submit itself to human shepherding. God's plan is to bring it all back together again and put it under Christ. The kingdom with the king. The kingdom under the king. So how is this going to unfold? Well, Paul's thesis here is to show us How this happened. How did we get to be in Christ? How did we get to be reconciled? How are we reconciled to God? And there are three things that take place. And each member of the Trinity is intimately involved. Firstly, the Father plans our salvation. Secondly, we're going to see that the Son purchased our salvation. And then thirdly, we see that the Spirit preserves our salvation. Salvation. What a wonderful Trinitarian unity we see here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all intimately involved in reconciling the world. So, number one, the Father plans our salvation. The Father's eternal plan is to unite sinful people to himself. The text tells us, look at with, with me at verse 4, that he decided this when? Before the world was created. In other words, in eternity past, God chose to save a multitude of people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. People from every nation. Not every nation, but people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And when was this decided? The text says it was before creation. So God before creation, together with Father, Son, and Spirit, planned the salvation of multitudes of people, a bride for His Son. The Father said, you will have a bride, you will have a church, you will have a people. The Son will have a people. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him, in Christ, the Father chose us in Christ, when before the foundation of the world... Charles Spurgeon says, if God hadn't chosen me before, he would never have chosen me after. If he knew anything about me. This is really good news. That God doesn't consider us, at least in the sense of our works. At least in the sense of our efforts. Our worthiness. Because no one is worthy of salvation. Praise God that this is unconditional election. Theologians call this unconditional election. 
meaning that there was nothing in you or I that made God choose us. It was completely unconditional. Before we were born, before creation, there was nothing in us that caused God, that moved the hand of God in you or I that he would show us mercy. It was free grace. Free grace. In other words, there was no condition that we had to meet in order to merit saving grace. Because if we think about grace, if there was a condition, then it would not be grace. It would be works. It's the essence of grace. The essence of grace is that it's undeserving. And so I want to say to you, there is mystery here. Like I said, we're in the deep end of the pool. There is mystery. And we can't let human logic take us where the Bible doesn't take us. So be cautious when we think through these truths. And so what was it that moved God to choose multitudes from before the foundation of the world? You see, the big objection is why didn't he just choose everyone? Why didn't he do that? And we don't know. Other than God does all things according to his perfect will and plan in order to magnify his glory. There is some insights that we can get because if God is both loving and kind and gracious, but also God of justice, and God magnifies his kindness and his love and his mercy by saving sinners, how does he magnify his justice? If everyone is saved. The only way to magnify justice is if there is justice to be meted out upon sinners. But that's very technical. You don't have to go there. Let me say this. This is very simple. When did God, when did God choose to love you? When did he? Did he choose to love you only when you chose to love him? I don't know if we want that. That's the only options we have. The only options are God chose to love us first. Before the foundations of the world. And one John tells us that we love him because he first loved us. So it's true. The other option is, no, no, God only chose to love me after I chose to love him. I don't know if I would worship a God like that. I don't know if I'd want to give my life to a God whose love for me is conditional. So I want to submit to you that God's love for us is what the text says. It's prior. It's before. Now, this isn't the only text. Let me put a little bit more scripture under this because it is controversial. What we find in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy is the very same thing is put forward concerning the people of Israel, the, the, the Old Testament covenant people of God. In Deuteronomy 6 and 8, it says this, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so there's a particular people that is chosen, right? Out of all the peoples are on the face of the earth. And then he says, here's the reason. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
but it is because the Lord loves you. And so the only reason we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament for why is because the Lord loves you. In the New Testament, we find the same thing affirmed in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 and 10. The same language that was applied to the old covenant people, Israel, is now applied to the new covenant church, which is made up of Jew and Gentile. The same language, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Then verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. How? Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so back to Ephesians 1 verse 4. What does the text say? It says, in love, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons or daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, his sovereign will. In other words, God's predestined before the creation of the world plan was to have a family that he was going to adopt into a family called the family of God. Multitudes of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, not according to their worth, not according to their works, but unconditionally adopt them. Now, we know what that's like because at a human level, We see adoption, don't we? We see it at a very human level, and it's incredible when we see it in action. We've got families in the church who've adopted children. We've got families in the church who are currently in the process of looking at adoption. And we stand with them, and we pray with them, and we get excited for them. And then when they adopt, we rejoice with them, don't we? It's it's an incredible. Everyone looks at the process of human adoption at an amazing way. We look at it with wonder, don't we? How much more at a perfect level between God and man should we not marvel at the process of adoption? And just to remind you in case you, I know you know this, but just by way of reminder, the child who gets adopted is grateful and gratefully receives not just Parents, but the family name. And not just the family name, but they become seated at the table and they get taken into the home and they get an inheritance and they're treated as sons and daughters. Ephesians 1 verse 11. In him, we, those who've been adopted, have obtained An inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And there's a counsel, there's the counsel of God's will that is the deep end, church. And so I I know this might be difficult for you to grasp or understand, but that's fine. Just stand in wonder at the process of adoption, that you and I were adopted Now, let me 
Let me get Spurgeon to help us here. Because if you're struggling going, why me and not someone else? Spurgeon weighs in on this. And here's a nice quote for us. And then I'm going to move on to the next point. Spurgeon says this. There are some who say it's unfair for God to choose some and leave others. It's a good question. Now, I will ask you one question. Is there any of you here this morning who wishes to be holy? Who wishes to be saved? And to leave sin and walk in holiness. Yes, there is. I do, says someone. Then God has elected you. But another says, no, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to give up my lusts and sins. Why should you grumble then that God has not elected you? For if you were elected, you would not like it according to your own confession. If God this morning had chosen you to holiness and you say you would not care for it, do you not acknowledge that you prefer drunkenness to sobriety, dishonesty to honesty? You love this world's pleasures better than salvation. Then why should you grumble that God has not chosen you to salvation? If you love salvation, he has chosen you for it. If you desire it, he has called you to it. If you don't, what right have you to say that God ought to have given you what you did not want. But that's not all we see in this text. Not only did the Father plan the salvation of those who would be saved before the creation of the world in His unconditional love for His people, but the Son stepped into time and He purchased that salvation. Look at this in verse 7 and 8. In Him we have redemption. That word redemption is to buy, to purchase. Jesus fulfilled the plan of the Father. So the Father's plan, point one, Jesus fulfills by buying us. He purchases us. Redemption, how? Through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins, trespasses. How? According to the riches of his grace. Grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight. A few things we need to see here. Our salvation is in Christ. There is no salvation apart from Christ. And so the plan of the Father was to elect, but the plan of the Son was to purchase. And we see here that Jesus is both the price and the purchaser. And Jesus comes willingly at great cost to himself. Right? Why? Because the purchasing is through his blood, through his death. In John 6, we read this, all the Father gives me will come to me. There it's affirmed, unconditional election. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, so it's an open invitation, I will never cast out. Because God creates the willingness. For I have come down from heaven, he says, Jesus, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Tim Keller asks this very important question. He says, if you believe in God, but not in Jesus, what did it cost your God to love you? It's a really, really important question that every single one of us needs to think through. If you believe in God, but not Jesus, so you've got some other form of God or some other shape of God or whatever your God is that you've created, what did it cost him to love you? 
Because only in Christianity do we have a God who loved us through dying for us. It cost him his life. It cost him everything. Verse 7, in him we have redemption by his blood. Redemption. This is how it works. I want to tell you a quick story. Little Johnny grew up in Southampton. And uh, growing up in Southampton, you know, you got the history of the Titanic was there. And a really important moment for the history of, of Southampton. The Titanic sailed from, from Southampton. And so it's a, a harbor city, a port city. And little Johnny was absolutely taken up with ships and boats. And so one day his dad gave him this beautiful piece of wood. And his dad was a, wood, a carpenter, a wood maker. And little Johnny would go into the woodwork shop and he would carve away at this block of wood. And he would carve away and he'd carve away. And after months of carving and shaping and sanding and loving, he built himself a wooden boat. Just a little modeled one. And he built the sail and he put the sail on and, and he got it perfectly ready and they went down to the water one day. Dad was at work and, and mom was at home and he rode his bike down and he went down to the water's edge and it was a perfectly calm day but within minutes a storm came up and as Johnny let the boat go and he let it sail off into the distance, the wind turned and it disappeared into the mist. And he was sobbing. The thing that he had labored over and created had now vanished into oblivion. And he was distraught and his parents consoled him and eventually he kind of came to terms with it. And about a year later, Johnny was riding to school and he was riding past a, a secondhand store and there in the window was the ship that he had made and it was there in the window. But as he got closer, he saw the price tag was 50 pounds. 50 pounds, and Johnny was like, whoa, I only get like five pence if I do the dishes and take the dog for a walk. And he was like, how many years is this going to take to save up? And so he ran back home, and he told his parents, and his parents were like, whoa, that's amazing. I'll tell you what, you can do more chores. And they gave him more chores. Notice that the water tank of freedom was in, the, in its right place. Uh, and, and they gave him chores. But in Johnny worked and he saved and he sacrificed and he sold his sweets and chocolates. And anyway, over a few weeks, he managed to get the money. Mom and dad did help. They were gracious. And he went there and he took the money into the shop and, and, and he took it up to the shop attendant. And he says, yeah, I want that boat, please. And so the, the guy took the boat and he brought it back to him and he took the boat and he held it in his hands. And Johnny said this. He said, now you are twice mine. First I made you, and now I bought you. Now you are twice mine. That's what we see here. In him we have redemption by his blood. In Christ we've been made and bought and God says to you, if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, if you have hope in Jesus, if you're looking to Jesus and your faith is in Jesus, he says to you, you are twice mine. First I made you and now I've bought you. The Father plans our salvation. The Son purchases our salvation. Finally, the Spirit preserves our salvation. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. There it is. 
What happened? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All three persons of the Godhead at work in your and my salvation. The Spirit comes and and enables us to hear the word of truth. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when the gospel was shared or someone shared his testimony, the Spirit was moving over that word. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you were blind, but now you see. Your heart was hard, but now it's soft. Once I was blind, but now I see. Hey, why did we write songs like that? I was lost, but now I'm found. We write songs like that because it's true. That's our experience. And the Spirit comes and awakens us and opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. And not only does he save us, but he seals us. And you were sealed, he says, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until we meet with him and acquire our possession of it to the praise of his glory. Church, sealed means sealed. We can't be unsealed any more than Christ can be uncrucified. If you are in Christ and you've been adopted into his family, you can't lose that. You may stumble and fall, but he will keep you. So as we close, how are we to respond? We see all three persons of the Trinity involved in our salvation. How did you become a Christian? This is how you became a Christian. The Father planned it, the Son purchased it, and the Spirit seals you and preserves you. How should we respond? I want to say in this text, we see three very important responses, just quickly. Number one, humility. Humility. God gets all the glory. If we have any part to play, then we get some glory, right? It's logical. The fact that the Father planned it, the Son purchased it, and the Spirit seals, that's all outside of us. Those things operate from outside in. We receive. We are recipients. We do not initiate. If we initiate any of those three processes, we get glory. But we don't. Look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. He gets glory, we get humbled. Why? Why me, God? Why am I a Christian? The reason you're a Christian is grace. That's all. Grace alone. Alone. And what does that produce? Pride? No. Humility. Gratefulness. Thankfulness. I don't deserve this. It was my sin that hung him there. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. 
He was crucified for me. I'm humbled. Second thing we see is holiness. God gets all the glory. Number two, God chooses us for holiness. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Some people think, oh, this doctrine produces license. Oh, if God's chosen me, then I can live however I want to. No, that's not what the text says. The text says he's chosen you for holiness. So how do I know I'm a Christian? I'm pursuing holiness. I want to live for the glory of God. I'm not living for myself anymore. That's what it means to believe in Christ. It's not just intellectual consent. It's not just going, okay, I believe that there was a Jesus Christ who lived in the Middle East many years ago. No, it's I'm treasuring him now. I believe in him and I'm pursuing holiness. Listen, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about pursuing holiness. Do you know what? The sign of whether you are a Christian or not is not that you have no bad desires. It's that you're at war with them. We all have bad desires. But the fact that you're at war with them is a sign that you're a Christian. The non-Christian couldn't care. They're not worried. They're not lying awake at night going, am I a Christian or not? They're not going, well, how do I know if I'm a Christian? They don't even think about Christ other than blaspheming him. It's not the perfection of one's life, but the direction of one's life that provides evidence of salvation. And then finally, the final response is witness. So humility, holiness, witness. God uses us for his glory. Another objection to this doctrine is, well, if God's going to save people like the way you told us, then why do we even tell people about Jesus? If God's elected people from before the foundation of the world, then what's the point of evangelism? And I want to say to you, there's every reason for evangelism. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you, what? Heard the word of truth. That's how you get saved. Through hearing. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing through the word of truth. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. Yes, God has planned people's salvation. But not only has he planned who will be saved, he's planned how they will be saved. And how they are saved is through preaching the gospel. And who gets to do that? We do. And so this is a great invitation. God is inviting us into his unfolding plan of restoring the cosmos to himself. There's no contradiction here between God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility. And so let's share the gospel. When you hear the word of truth and believe, you get saved. In other words, Let's do it. We are to preach the gospel to all and leave the results to one. So let me say, I want us to, over chapter 1 and chapter 2, I heard this week that's amazing that some people in the church are reading through Ephesians, all of it, in the week as we preach through this book. And I really want to encourage you, if, you've, if you feel, hey, that's me, I want to do that. I want to marinate in this book. I want to saturate myself in God's word. You know what you're doing? You are coming under the Holy Spirit. 
Because the Spirit wrote the book. The Spirit inspired these words from the Apostle Paul. Let's get into the book and let's sit in it. All right? Because chapters 1 and 2 are all about sitting. Our identity in Christ. And then we're going to walk it out. Chapters 3 and 4 and 5. And then we're going to stand chapter 6. But it's got to start with sitting. We can't walk until we've learned to sit. Know who you are in Christ. Rejoice in your salvation. Thank him for what he's done for you. I know you may have questions. That's fine. Get into the text. Jump into the book. And allow it to minister to your heart. Amen. Let's pray. We're going to share communion together. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would really help us to see the joy of our salvation, that our salvation is outside of us, that as Christians we are not on a self-salvation project, that salvation is not turning over a new leaf, it's not becoming morally better. Actually, it's a whole new way of life. It's receiving Christ's sacrifice for us, and it's walking in a new way. Father, thank you for this passage that gives us insight into the deep end of the mystery of your will. And we confess, Lord, we don't, we don't grasp all of this. It is mysterious. It's beyond our comprehension. But we thank you that you've given us a witness. You've given us your word. And so we trust you, Lord. We trust that you are working all things. As this text says, you've got a plan. And thank you that your plan is to reunite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. So we're trusting in you, Lord, and your sovereign plan. Thank you that we get to be part of it. Thank you that we get to share the gospel. Thank you that we get to be part of seeing people come to salvation through our testimony and through our witness. Lord, we are humbled this morning. We are humbled that you would save us, that you would say to us, you, you church, are twice mine. We are humbled. In Jesus' name, amen.